Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We spoke back in August 2021. His name is Dr. William R. Kelly. And we talked about a book he wrote uh, and published just this year. The title of that book in our talk is The Crisis in America's Criminal Courts, Improving Criminal Justice Outcomes by Transforming Decision-Making. And today we're going to talk one of, about one of his earlier books, uh, published in 2019. The title of this one, and if you can see on YouTube, the title is The Future of Crime and Punishment, Smart Policies for Reducing Crime and Saving Money, published 2019. Uh, Dr. Kelly is a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Criminology and Criminal Justice Research at the University of Texas at Austin. He has taught and conducted research in criminology and criminal justice for over 25 years and has published extensively on a variety of justice matters. And some of his earlier books are Confronting Underground Justice, Reinventing Plea Bargaining for Effective Criminal Justice Reform, published 2018, From Retribution to Public Safety, Disruptive Innovation of American Criminal Justice, 2017, Criminal Justice at the Crossroads, Transforming Crime and Punishment, published 2015, and then Justice Under Pressure, pressure A Comparison of Recidivism Patterns Among Four Successive Parolee Cohorts, and that was published 2012. But again, the title of this book is The Future of Crime and Punishment, Smart Policies for Reducing Crime and Saving Money. So Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for returning. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, for people who may not have heard our last discussion and not know your background, you've taught for 25 years, you've published extensive research for 25 years. Can you kind of talk about some of your background and what led you to write this particular book, The Future of Crime and Punishment. I'd be happy to. Um, I, if, if it was only 25 years I've been teaching, um, I've been at this uh, probably for more like 35 years. Sorry, sorry. No, no, but believe me, it's perfectly fine. Um, and I've taught criminology and criminal justice for, for many years. And about 10 years ago, it got to the point where it was obvious to me from what I was teaching that the current American criminal justice system, which includes everything from the very front end of policing all the way to the back end of prison, parole release, and then unfortunately the pattern of the vast majority returning to the system um, in terms of reoffending, that what we had built uh, over the past 50 years, starting in the mid 1970s, was dysfunctional, uh, was counterproductive, uh, was the classic revolving door uh, uh, you know, that's used as the metaphor for the criminal justice system. It is the reality today that the vast majority of people, uh, I would say close to 100%, uh, reoffend uh, as people who've been through the criminal justice system, arrested typically originally for a low-level misdemeanor, uh, public order crime, a small drug charge, then begins a cycle uh, for a variety of reasons, begins a cycle uh, where they then engage in a, in a long-term career of, in, of, of coming in and out of the criminal justice system. And, you know, you take a couple of key facts, like what do we do to them when they're in the criminal justice system and what happens when they're out? It doesn't take a whole lot of statistics or science to appreciate the fact that this thing ain't working. Um, so I basically said, you know, it's time to start thinking about where, where do we, how, how do we turn this around? Right. And I think it's important to re recognize how we got here, how uh, important this kind of 
tough on crime attitude goes back, you said, 50 years. Can you talk about some of the foundations of what led to the rise of the what you call the what is it? The criminal justice state or was it a criminal industrial complex? Sorry. Yeah. I also use some harsher language that I probably can't use. Um, you know, it, it, there are a number of factors that came into play that help us understand how we got to where we are today. Some of those are legitimate. So it, the, the, the story here takes us back to the 1960s. Um, obviously, a tremendous amount of uh, civil unrest, that is the race riots that were occurring starting in 1965 in Los Angeles and that swept the nation up until about 1970. We had um, campus protests over the Vietnam War. We had the initiation of drug use on, on campuses and in urban areas. Uh, we had historically high crime rates. Uh, so there were a variety of things that colluded at a particular point in time um, that ironically Richard Nixon grabbed onto and said, you know, we have a serious problem with disorder in this country and um, I'm gonna be the one to fix it. So basically Nixon and the Republican party um, grabbed onto this whole issue of crime and punishment um, and used that to their political advantage to, um, to launch us down a road of the expansion of the criminal justice system, the expansion of the criminal code that is increasing what is criminal behavior the war on drugs and a variety of other things. So, you know, I, I, I'm mainly critical in, in, in the discussion, but no, to be fair, these were issues. These were important issues. I mean, this was unprecedented. You would have Walter Cronkite every night, for listeners who remember Walter Cronkite, uh, every night on the news talking about, you know, murders and rapes in, uh, in the streets of the country and Vietnam War protests and race riots. And it was like, you know, we've, uh, this country is coming apart um, and, and somebody needs to do something about it. And initially it was the Republican party, the national, the Republican national committee and the, and the Nixon campaign that basically said, you know, we can solve a problem and gain political advantage here. Um, Nixon was elected as we know. And he uh, sort of rode this path of tough on crime uh, for uh, six years and then became sort of a ironic victim himself by his involvement in Watergate. There are a number of other things that came in as well. I mean, we, ha we had the liberal US Supreme Court, the Warren Court that was handing down uh, sort of landmark decisions that were viewed as being pro-defendant, things like access to counsel, things like restrictions on search and seizure, uh, things like that. Right. Miranda um, rights, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Miranda. Uh, there, all these were perceived as being uh, putting handcuffs on the criminal justice system, making it more and more difficult um, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to accomplish public safety. So you know, Nixon basically took on Earl Warren uh, in, in campaign speeches. And again, it, it, it was a combination of politicizing a problem. Gee, where have we heard that before? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's not talk about COVID here, but I mean, it's really, it's not all that different from taking a public, uh, a public problem, uh, you know, public safety problem, a public health problem and politicizing it. Right. And it was highly successful.
uh, you know, you walk through the, the administrations, uh, you know, Nixon had six years, then Ford served, served out the rest of that term. Then we had Jimmy Carter, obviously, I think is in response to Watergate. Jimmy Carter didn't have too much involvement in uh, criminal justice policy, but Ronald Reagan did. And he served eight years. Reagan probably did more to um, promote tough on crime than any other president. He was behind uh, the uh, changes in sentencing laws at the federal level, uh, implementing the federal sentencing guidelines. Reagan was responsible for pouring uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, into state expansion of prisons. Um, also promoted expansion of the criminal code, sometimes referred to as overcriminalization. That is, you know, it, making more and more things illegal and making it more and more difficult for individuals to know when they're breaking the law. Um, and then through um, the Clinton administration, I mean, the Bill Clinton, ironically, as a Democrat, uh, Bill Clinton, the Clinton campaign. And, um, and the Democratic National Committee decided enough of this, you know, tough on crime ownership by the Republicans. We want some of that leverage. We want, we want to leverage that as well. So we saw a transition in the Democratic Party and the Democratic interests in being tough on crime. And, right. and, and Clinton campaigned on that. I mean, a classic example of during the campaign, he took time out from the campaign trail, went back to Arkansas to witness the execution of someone who'd been sentenced to death while he had been governor. Um, you know, and the obvious question is, what the hell was that about? And the answer was, tough. it's symbolic gesture that's reaffirming that the Democrats can be tough on crime as well. Right. Just to interrupt, but there was a notorious kind of crime bill of 1994, right? But also under Nixon, there was the Rockefeller laws, which increased drug crime. I think it's important in this discussion that that really increased the penalties for holding very small amounts of drugs, right? Exactly. In the, in the early 1970s, Nelson Rockefeller was governor of New York and passed the so-called uh, Rockefeller drug laws, which, which at the time were really the most draconian uh, consequences for what we would consider today, you know, mainly like possession cases, um, putting people away for you know, 15, 20, 25 years for possession of a gram of cocaine. Right. Uh, luckily, those have been rolled back uh, in more recent years. But I mean, that clearly sent a message that, you know, we're serious about this war on, on drugs thing. Um, and, 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 you know, again, the sentencing, federal sentencing guidelines had provisions for uh, severe punishment, long incarceration terms at the federal level for all kinds of drug crimes and many other states followed suit. I mean, that's, that, that's really, I mean, we have, we have, we have 51 criminal justice systems, 50 states, the federal, uh, you know, that are creating laws and policies regarding how criminal justice shall operate. And in many instances, they were trying to outdo each other. Who can be the toughest? Right. And for, for a long time, I'm, I'm in Austin, Texas for a long time, and probably to this day, Texas is, if not the toughest, one of the toughest states uh, in the country on crime. And, you know, it, it begs the question, all of this begs the question, what have we bought? You know, right. we've spent, we have spent billions of dollars 
uh, well, more than that, we've spent a trillion dollars on the war on drugs over the past 50 years. We've yeah, spent it. Yeah, and you, I think you make a statistic in your book. It's like we're spending billion, hundreds of billions of dollars per year to maintain yeah. this kind of state. Absolutely. And, you know, at some point, someone needs to say, slam on the brakes. You know, what, what's the cost benefit here? What, what, what is it we're paying for and what are we getting in return? You know, if, if, if this was a if, if, if the criminal justice system was a, a publicly traded corporation, it would be delisted from, you know, Wall Street in about 12 minutes with, you know, this price performance uh, of, of the system. I mean, again, a trillion dollars on the war on drugs, a trillion dollars on punishment right. in the U.S. criminal justice system over the past 50 years, and a recidivism rate that is reoffending and re-entering the criminal justice system of nearly 100%. All right, so it's just this self-sustaining growth, and you show these stats of like how many people are in jail. Uh, yeah, it's just off the charts that have been there. It's it's millions of people. People have been in probation and things like that have grown uh, exponentially, right? Absolutely, and compared to any other Western democracy that we know of, uh, we are. Way, I mean, and in most other countries that that we know of, we are so far beyond in terms of our incarceration rates. Um, we're so far beyond any other country. I mean, it's it's American exceptionalism, but I don't think that's really what they had in mind when they talk about it. We are profoundly exceptional in terms of how we use uh, punishment as a way to change behavior. I mean, at the end of the day, the problem is, and I'm not I'm not apologizing. You know, I, I'm not saying we should you know let just let people go. There should be consequences. There should be, the goal here should be public safety. The goal should not be to see how, how punitive we can be. Um, right. you, you see, know, punishment is the crime. The punishment is the crime. Yeah. That's your first job. Actually, I mean, I, I wish I could claim that, but it was a, an editor who, who thought of that title. Uh, so I, I can't take credit for it, but I thought it was, it really, it really hit home because what we're right. trying to do, I mean, people do bad things. And just to be clear to the audience, I'm not saying we just let everybody go. Prisons are necessary, um, you know, but we need to use them more selectively. We need to use them more smartly, if that's even a word. Um, we should understand what they can and cannot do. Um, so best case, prisons can incapacitate people. That is, say I've committed a, a horrible crime, and that I'm high risk of reoffending, the best thing you can do for me is to get me off the streets, put me in a controlled environment, that is prison, and prevent me from committing crime. But there's very little, and uh, I assume we'll get into this in a moment, but there's very little about prison that can actually change behavior. And in fact, the, the evidence indicates precisely the opposite, that is that the experience of incarceration is what is called criminogenic. That is, increases the likelihood of recidivism. Right. So it's counterproductive to, to, for some of these people. And those hard, harsh sentences do not account for some of the underlying problems of why people commit crime. And if those were addressed, there'd be less crime in general, right? You know, we have for, we have for years said that crime uh, is largely a matter of poor decision making or 
hanging out with the wrong people. And if it were only as simple as that, then maybe the mechanisms we have in place, you know, arrest, prosecute, put somebody in jail, put somebody in prison, uh, even put them on probation could be effective. Uh, but it's not as simple as poor decision making. There are many, we have, we have learned really in the past 30 years. I mean, this is not like hot off the press news. We know that there is a large number of factors that contribute to criminality. Um, underlying conditions like poverty, mental illness, substance abuse, employment problems, educational deficits. Um, it's a very long list of things. Um, mental health is, is really a big one. Um, what we have ended up doing historically is to use the criminal justice system as an, an asylum. Um, it may be shocking to hear this, but the largest mental health facility, I use that word carefully because I'm not talking about treatment. I'm just talking about the largest mental health facility in California is the Los Angeles County Jail. The largest mental health facility in Illinois is the Cook County Jail. I mean, and you can almost say the same thing for every state. Take the largest, um, take the largest city, and it's probably true that there are more, you know, mentally ill individuals there than in any other place in the state. We have used the criminal justice system as a dumping ground for people that have a variety of conditions, deficits, disorders, uh, impairments that um, ultimately add up to much of this being, at least in part, a public health issue as much as it is a public safety issue. However, we have almost without exception treated it really as a public safety issue with the simple mantra that, you know, uh, punishment, punishment works for us. I mean, you know, we grew up being scolded by our parents and, you know, that's part of socialization. That's part of becoming a civil individual um, and threats of punishment. All that worked for us. Why the hell doesn't it work for them? I mean, that's really the basic assumption that is so profoundly wrong. Right. And that, that was the whole thing is like the mental illness. It's not just the mental illness, but that leads to crime. So if you treat the mental illness, you may not have as much crime. And also the substance, I think you quote in your book, 80% of the individuals in prison today have a substance abuse uh, use disorder too. So it's mental Absolutely. illness. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's really, um, it's, it's, it's sad in, in my mind for policymakers to think that locking someone up and preventing them from having drugs while they're locked up is going to solve their addiction problem. I mean, what we understand today is that addiction is not just a, it's not just a choice. It's not like, oh, I want to go smoke some crack or I want to you know, shoot some heroin. Addiction is a brain disorder. Uh, use of drugs fundamentally changed the structure and functioning of the brain. Um, so there's, there's nothing about not doing the drug that rewires the brain. That requires, well, just something in simple terms, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a modality, a very common modality used in therapeutic settings that uh, basically retrain an individual uh, in terms of how they think about things, how they make decisions, which in turn 
rewires the brain in, 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 in pro in pro-social ways. Uh, there's nothing good about drug abuse. There's nothing good about addiction. Uh, but they're not, I mean, even though, even though possession of drugs is, is a crime, I mean, the fact that somebody is, is addicted to a drug is a public health issue. I mean, it's gotten better. You know, uh, I think the last count was roughly 10 states, I think now, have, have legalized possession of marijuana. Some states have decriminalized possession of, um, of uh, drugs, I mean, small quantities. Some jurisdictions with more progressive prosecutors, uh, even though the, the laws are still on the books, are refusing to prosecute low-level drug possession cases in recognition that A, it's a public health issue, and B, going to prison invariably makes it worse. That conclusion is even more profound with regard to individuals who are mentally ill. Uh, one of the saddest things is to, is to, is to you know, see like a frontline uh, uh, video on, uh, on, on mentally ill individuals in prison and how they invariably decompensate, that is get worse because, because of the prison environment. Um, there's nothing about going to prison that makes somebody mentally healthy. Right. I mean, it's just going to exacerbate the problem. And you kind of have solutions to these mental health drug problems. There are options that should you think should be taken to ameliorate these problems, right? Well, that's the good news. I mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of negative uh, things to talk about. There's a lot of criticism, a lot of finger pointing, um, and you know we can do that all day. But the real the real question here is fine. It doesn't work. Give us a solution. I mean, this is what I get from judges. They told me, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we know this doesn't work. I keep seeing the same people come through my courtroom. I know it ain't working, but what's the solution? Good news is today we have about 30 years of sophisticated, uh, valid, reliable evaluation research that uh, highlights a variety of strategies and programs that can address uh, many of these major issues that we're that we've been talking about um, in ways that are productive in terms of people uh, getting better and therefore being less criminal justice involved. Diversion is an important one, and and, and for, for for many reasons, but one of the most important ones is that contact with the criminal justice system is criminogenic. Even if, it's, even if it's a wrongful arrest or a wrongful conviction, making it wrongful doesn't make it easier. There are consequences for having been arrested. There are consequences for having been convicted. We see those on the other end of this, where someone's trying to find a job or housing, things like that. The, the basic idea is, and, and this is in very simple terms, is to rethink the circumstances of many criminal offenders in terms of public health rather than in terms of crime and punishment. And diversion uh, says, let's minimize the contact with the criminal justice system. Somebody does something, uh, say I'm a schizophrenic and I'm off my medication and I'm acting in ways that are typical of a schizophrenic off of medication. Who Somebody sees me I might appear threatening. I might appear, you know, unusual. 
And, you know, to borrow a phrase from Ghostbusters, who are you going to call? And the answer is the police, invariably. Now, do the police have training in how to deal with somebody in a mental health crisis? Most do not. And in most situations, this is going to deteriorate to where I get arrested, I get put in jail, and that begins this whole process of, of, of decompensation. So the, the basic idea is as soon, as early as possible, we should, be, we should attempt to divert individuals, pre-arrest, certainly uh, pre-booking, divert individuals away from the criminal justice system into uh, uh, mental health uh, treatment facilities. Right, and that's one. And can you also talk about drug courts? Because you also, because uh, that's a huge part of the criminal justice system is this drug arrests and uh, absolutely. You know, can you talk about that? Yeah. And so clearly, we're not talking about drug dealers. We're not talking about cartels. We're talking about you know people end users who have um, you know uh, personal amounts of whatever drugs uh, okay. and are using them and and probably addicted. Uh, what do we do about that? I mean, it's so prolific, as you as you noted, eighty percent uh, have have some substance use disorder. I mean, that's profound. Uh, that, that's a profound thing to understand. And again, it goes back to the what the hell good do it, does it do to lock them up? It doesn't doesn't change their behavior. Um, about whew, thirty years ago, um, in Miami-Dade County, Florida, they developed the first drug court, which is um, designed as a treatment uh, context with oversight by a special court called the drug court that has a judge, but also has social workers, has treatment beds, has inpatient, outpatient treatment available. Uh, accountability, yes, because you know individuals have to uh, agree to do whatever it is they're told to do with regard to treatment and showing up in court for court dates and things like that. And this, this idea took off. I mean, there was one in 1989. There are about, I think, at last count, about 3,500 drug courts around the country. They, they vary a bit in terms of how they're designed and operated, but the basic point is the same, and that is um, to think differently about, quote, drug crime, um, in, more in terms of a public health issue that requires treatment rather than punishment. Um, it, it, the evidence is pretty clear that, that this model works. I mean, obviously right. some work better than others. And it's cost effective too, because you're not paying the $200,000 a year to put people in jail or whatever the stat was. It's a huge you know, amount of money. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, here's the problem policymakers, I think, fail to appreciate. So let's pretend I'm a drug offender. And um, let's say I'm, I have a you know an addiction to whatever whatever drug it is. Um, you arrest me, you convict me, and you put me in 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 prison. I do three years. I get out. What's what's going to happen? Well, we all know what's going to happen because nothing's changed. I'm going to do it again, and then we go through that whole dance again, and and then I get out. And it, and every time I reoffend, the cash register is ringing. I mean, it's requiring you know, police time, uh, court time, prosecutor time, jail time. So, you know, uh, the, the cost-benefit analyses show not only is drug diversion and drug treatment, like in the context of a drug court, more cost-effective in the moment, 
that is compared to putting me in prison, it is profoundly cost effective if you think long term. Right. All the times I don't reoffend, that doesn't that doesn't cost money. Right. It uh, just makes perfect sense. I mean, there's a lot of things you go into why the you know public opinion hasn't changed because you said I think you said 75 percent of Texans think that nonviolent criminals should be sent to treatment like this instead yeah. of jail. So why isn't why hasn't the policy adapted to public opinion? Uh, politics. I mean, the evidence is there. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, 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 it's indisputable unless you don't believe it. And, you know, then we run into the problem of, you know, science being questioned. Um, if you know, somebody just doesn't believe it, like with COVID, you know, good Lord, all the stuff that we, uh, all the misinformation about COVID, when there is plenty of scientific evidence that people decide they just don't believe. Um, so, and, and, and believe it or not, in today, in 2021, being tough on crime still in many places resonates politically. Um, less so in large metropolitan areas, more so in more conservative rural areas. Now, you know, that's not to say that we haven't changed. Things have changed. Uh, we're, we're at least talking more about many opportunities now. Exactly. And, you know, it's here, here's my big complaint. Um, and it, it sort of goes to the issue of drug courts. We know that they that they work. We know that they're cost effective. Uh, what we have, however, is about 10 percent of the capacity that we actually need. I mean, almost every jurisdiction. We have 3000 counties in the country. We have thirty five hundred drug courts. Probably nearly every county has one. Uh, the problem is they're small, and the problem is they're not well-funded. Uh, so even though we have them, they, they don't come close to addressing the need. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that's a funding issue. It also goes to the, how, do we think, how do we still think about crime and punishment? Well, we got to have this drug court because everyone else has one, but we're still pretty much going to be locking these folks up. Right. I mean, still kind of continuing that same issue. Can you talk real quick about what SWIFT and certain sanction courts are? Um, you know, it's a concept that was developed by a, a judge in Hawaii who basically, um, it, it was a way to help increase the compliance of probationers. And he created this special court called a SWIFT and in, in, in certain court, also called a HOPE court, H-O-P-E, after Hawaiian something, something, something. Um, that basically said um, that we know from deterrence theory and deterrence evaluation that the that you know, there are three three components to deterrence. The punishment needs to be swift, certain, and severe in order for it to uh, theoretically deter crime. All we've done with our criminal justice system is the severe part. And what the Hope Court does, or the, or the Swift and Certain Sanction Court does, is to focus on swift and certain. So if somebody is a, you know, uh, an offender on probation, or you know, even other contexts, uh, on day one comes before the judge. The judge says, "Here's, here, here, here's, here's the contract. You know, here are our expectations. Here's what we think. Here, here's what you need to do. And if you don't do what you need to do, the consequences are not." three months down the road, the consequences are not six months down the road, you're going to jail right now. Um, so it's swift and certain uh, 
punishment. I mean, but but the the, the punishment is minimal. I mean, it's like a, a night in jail. I mean, not to the point where it's disruptive, where you might lose your employment or, you know, lose your apartment or whatever. Um, and the evidence is is suggestive um, that that kind of sanctioning can be effective for certain populations of individuals. Um, it hasn't really been tested on on uh, parolees as much as, as it is on people who have been uh, sentenced to probation um, and other types of settings, but it's it's an interesting um, thing to add to the mix of, of policy considerations. And so you have these kind of diversion programs, different kind of courts. What do you think should be implemented to kind of minimize the punitive jail only solutions to crime? You know, there, there are, are probably 30 things that I could mention. Um, many of them mechanical, you know, um, uh, programming, uh, funding, things like that. And, you know, again, with a focus on diversion earlier, the better. Uh, developing appropriate capacity in the community to treat these things. I mean, it, you can divert people, but if you don't have some place to divert them to, you're wasting your time. So, you know, communities need to develop adequate capacity for things like mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment. Um, the bigger issue in my mind is that we need to change how we think about crime and punishment. The issue here is really culture. Um, it's, it's how we think about uh, uh, misdeeds. It's our focus on being, um, on, it's our focus on retribution uh, as, as, a, as a society. Uh, for many things that people do, we think that we're justified in, in you know, some type of vengeance. And that's really the logic of much of punishment. Um, but that doesn't get us, all that does is, is satisfy some emotional need. Um, what we really need to do is to, is to change how we understand criminal behavior, to appreciate that it's not, you know, the scum of the earth that are doing it. Some of them, sure, throw them in that, in, in that, in that box. But most of the individuals who engage in crime uh, do so for recognizable reasons, not excuses, but reasons, many of which are fixable. Um, and until we embrace the idea of trying to actually enhance public safety, prevent crime, rather than just, you know, here's the crime, here's the time kind of logic. Um, and, and I think it's a culture change, not only within the criminal justice system, but certainly within uh, legislative uh, decision-making bodies like state legislatures and Congress and even local, um, you know, county, county government and city government um, and, and policing organizations. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, we, we, you know, we, we, we can talk about budgets, we can talk about programming, we can talk about who goes to prison and who doesn't, whether we should have sentencing guidelines or whether we should allow judges more opportunity, um, whether, you know, we should elect progressive prosecutors who are more inclined to think creatively about this. Um, all those things are important. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we don't really shift how we think about all this stuff, we're just sort of going through the motions. Right. And I think that your book really does detail all of these different approaches to certain, you know, problems within criminal justice, guns, juveniles, um, aging population, jails, prisons. So 
I think it's really like people need to have a more nuanced view of the, the system and the, the like public safety should be the highest or a very high value in how these things are solved, in my opinion, after reading your book, because then you're kind of you're separating the different types of crimes differently. Would you agree with that? That that's probably I mean, it seems like that, yeah. I mean, think about this. There is I mean, this is going to come as a surprise, probably. Uh, and some people will argue with it. But really, there is nobody in charge of reducing recidivism. There is nobody in charge of crime prevention. There is really nobody in charge of public safety. The criminal justice system is a bunch of pieced together organizations, many of which in, you know, operate in, you know, independently, the police, and then we have the courts, which is prosecutors and public defenders and judges. And then we have a variety of correctional uh, institutions. Um, but, you know, we... Uh, when you think about it, it's amazing to think that there's no and a public yeah. safety officer or somebody trying to, just like one guy at a, a bureaucratic office that should exactly. be preventing recidivism. It's amazing. Who raises, I mean, just think about it. Yeah. yeah. So you ask the question, all right, who's in charge? Nobody raises their hand. I mean, all right, all right, who's in charge of crime prevention? Isn't that the goal of the criminal justice system? I mean, I would, I would hope at some level that's what we're trying to accomplish. Ain't nobody going to raise their hand and say, I'm the one in charge of that. It is... I mean, it, it's amazing that it's not worse in worse shape than it is. Right. It's incredible. With that amount of money spent, it really is incredible that and that's, they're not. You know, as taxpayers, we should be um, irritated by that, to say the least. I mean, the, the war on drugs has been a dismal failure. We've been try We have tried for decades to control supply. I mean, how well has that been working? That failure, total failure. Yeah. yeah. And any judge you know, with a straight face will tell you this is a failure. Any prosecutor um, with really being honest will say this is a failure. But we continue after we know all this. I mean, the DEA is as strong today as it was 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's frustrating and incredible. But uh, great discussion. Thanks so much for writing this book. Really fascinating. I learned a lot. Where's the best place for people to get the future of crime and punishment? Oh, Amazon. They have everything, don't they? I mean, and, and Professor, do you have like social media or a website? I have a website, uh, William Kelly, uh, K-E-L-L-Y, Ph-D, dot com. I'll put that in the show notes, WilliamKellyPhD.com. So I'll put that in there. And people, if they want to reach out to you, they can contact you through yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Again, the title of the book is The Future of Crime and Punishment, Smart Policies for Reducing Crime and Saving Money. And it's Dr. William R. Kelly. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Stay there. Stay there.